Hey, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your uh, host, Paul Gillette, coming to you from the MRH Recording Complex in Phoenix, Arizona. Today, we have on the line Jason Schron of Rapido. Welcome, Jason. How you doing? Doing pretty good. Excellent. Uh, tell you what, if you want, why don't you give the uh, listeners a little bit of background? Sure. Well, I started Rapido, oh gosh, uh, almost 10 years ago now when I was trying to do a PhD in art history in England. So um, if you ever want to start a model train manufacturing business, you have to spend 10 years studying art, and you have to go and start a PhD in a foreign country and then abandon it. That is your surefire way to become a model train manufacturer. And I uh, started it part-time in my apartment, and uh, in 2004, uh, incorporated, and in 2005, went full-time with it, because I, at that point, had a factory in China, and we were already starting work on our first two passenger cars. So uh, that's where wow, that we yeah. started, yeah. That, that's a pretty daggone steep ramp you just climbed there. <laughs> but, I mean... Well, uh, it doesn't was, happen that way in the corporate world. We drag things out a lot longer than that. Well, right. well, I'll tell you, I mean, some personal information. I just turned yeah. 37, and uh, I have a beautiful wife and three beautiful children, my youngest of whom uh, was just born in January. So, That's what I read somewhere. Yeah, my wife and I are now outnumbered by the kids, so it really okay. changes the dynamic. But um, myself, I'm, I've been obsessed with trains, specifically via trains, and specifically the turbo. Uh, since I was two years old, we moved from Montreal to Toronto, and I uh, I took the turbo to go back to Montreal to visit family, and I fell in love with this train, and, and I can honestly say that that it really changed the direction of my life. Uh, the turbo, um, those of you, uh, your, your listeners who don't know it, it was an experimental train built uh, by United Aircraft in Connecticut and Pratt and & Whitney in Montreal. Um, and it is still to this day the fastest train in North America. It has the speed record for fastest production train in the United States of 171 miles an hour. And that was on Pennsylvania Railroad track. It wasn't even in Pueblo um, at the test track. And it still has the record for fastest train in Canada at 141 miles an hour. Um, and uh, it was an amazing, amazing gas turbine experiment, a great train that died for almost entirely political reasons. Uh, more information is available in the book that I wrote on it. Um, and so that really sort of changed the direction of my life from the age of two and made me this via and train-obsessed maniac. And my parents thought after the turbo was retired at the age of when I was seven that, okay, you know, now that'll die down. And uh, it seemed that as I got older, my obsession just got even stronger to the extent that I now, you know, I'm, I'm a model train manufacturer. That's that's my full-time job. It has been for seven years, and that's that's what I do to pay the bills uh, because I'd, I, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing, especially not uh, talking in a lecture hall about paintings. As much as I enjoyed that, um, this is this is much more exciting for me. Okay. So, wow, from art to there. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you get out of out of high school, and what are you going to do with your life? Who knows, right? That's right. Um, I know people, especially when I live in England, you know, people have to choose what they want to do for their, the rest of their lives when they're 14 or 15 years old, and uh, and you have no idea when you're that that age. And uh, I, I always was in the sciences, and but I really preferred art. And then 
I was given a scholarship to a fine arts program at York University in Toronto, and I jumped at it. And then, you know, so did visual arts, which was great, did sculpture. Everything was train-related. I trained sculptures. I did train painting. I did train <laughs> drawing. You know, there was, there was one thing that was actually installed in the subway station temporarily down in, in downtown Toronto, King Subway Station. There were these three images of Via LRC cars. It was was my uh, was my big project for finishing my degree, um, and then I went. You know, I, I thought, how do I make a living at this? So I ended up in studying art history because I figured, you know, as an artist, it's very hard to actually make a living. Uh, and I went to art history, and I enjoyed that. But you know, I wrote a, a master's thesis on uh, Canadian Pacific in the 19th century, <laughs> and uh, and then I started my PhD looking at 19th century trains in England. And then I thought, you know, I'd really rather just be making model trains and looking at via trains and riding via trains and sort of the whole art thing is just secondary. And so uh, I turned to my wife and we got back after three years in England. I turned to her and said, you know, I really want to try and make a make a career out of the, the model train business. And this actually came out of something she said to me. I, I was working at a little workshop and, you know, I didn't. I didn't like doing the PhD, so I was procrastinating as much as possible. So I set up a workshop, and I was I was I was building uh, model via cars by taking Riverossi cars and scraping off the underbodies and scratch building parts and casting AC equipment and resin that I scratch built and all this sort of thing. And yeah. uh, and the hobby it was very expensive. So I turned to my wife and said, you know, this hobby can cost several thousand dollars a year, especially once I start building a layout in the home we're one day going to have. And she said to me, well, as long as the hobby can pay for itself, that's fine. And what she meant was, you know, sell more uh, stuff on eBay uh, you know, so that the hobby would pay for itself. And yeah. now this, it's 10 years later, and, uh, you know, and the, the hobby has been, been paying for itself for seven years. So uh, it's, it's pretty good that I'm able to do that. It's, it's, well, you know, I love going to work. And when I'm not at work, I'm generally working in my basement on something train-related or I'm visiting train museums or recording locomotive sounds in Alberta or uh, or North Conway. You know, it's I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm very, very lucky and very blessed, I'll tell you that much. Cool. And your wife now knows to be very distinct and clear yeah. when she makes a comment. Yeah, she's she's uh, very careful about that. Uh, yeah. No, I, I don't know how many of your listeners know about this, but because uh, I haven't been so public about it, but I've spent the last four years building a via rail coach in my basement. So not an HO scale model of a via coach, but a one-to-one scale model of a via coach, um, a 20-foot slice of, of a coach. So you actually walk, okay. you walk to the back of the basement. There's a 12-by-20 room with nine-foot ceilings, and there's a coach in there. So you see the coach, the exterior. You walk along the exterior. You go in through the vestibule and then into the car, and you see the luggage racks, and you see the – on the real coach, it's a bathroom electrical locker. On my coach, it's just a, a place for me to keep my records and record player. Um, and then there's seats. And, and overhead racks and windows, and uh, and then it just stops because I only have 20 feet. <laughs> but that's what I've been doing for the last four years. So so my wife's basement's been converted into a V-Rail train car, and um, she's very patient. She's a saint. Well, okay, okay so you didn't cut apart a via car and bring it down. You've actually just fabricated one out of construction one. Yeah, fabricated one. And, as you know, it took 2,500 hours because it did just about all the work myself. And I made every mistake in the book. You know, I mean, I remember my brother came, and I had the, the, stud, the exterior wall in two-by-three studs. And uh, I had the stud wall up. And he looks at it. And I don't know if you know construction, but there was no sole plate on the stud wall. I had I toenailed the studs into the floor. And he said to me, <laughs> my brother's an architect, okay? He said yeah. to me, 
you toenailed all those studs <laughs> into the floor. I said, yeah. And you got them straight. I said, well, yeah. I said, do you know how much extra work you did by not just making the wall and then putting it in position? Uh, well, I, yeah, I've been making this up as I go along. Yeah, I read the page in the Home Depot guide, you know, about making a wall after I built that wall, right? So, Timing's everything, Jason. <laughs> every mistake. But I actually, at one point, um, did buy a car that was going to be, a real car that was going to be scrapped. Um, and I saved it from the scrapper. It was not in operable condition. It would have required a, an investment of probably $200,000 to get it running again. Um, but I was able to save it from being scrapped and got all the good bits from inside out of the car. So the door frames, the, the windows, the seats, the cool. doors, the ceiling panels, everything, light fixtures, coat hooks. Like we took that car apart and everything that we could save out of it, we did. And if we hadn't done that, that car would have every, like every, all that wonderful history of a, of a car built for Sienna in 1954, transferred to Vita in 1978, worked in Montreal commuter service till 19, from 1990 to 95. I mean, this car has got history, and it all would have ended up in the dumpster. So it was nice that we were able to save that. And I, I got all the bits that I needed because, you know, people would save, um, if, if they ever took apart a car, they save the light fixtures. They save the coat hooks. They would never save the plywood luggage racks. They would never save the uh, the end panels and, and the, the masonite ceiling panels. I mean, they really are masonite. Um, but this is a way I could get all of them out of the car. And so I was very, and that was just like the, the stars were aligned for me to be able to get that because it, it was a steal. I'm not going to tell you how much to pay for it. Let's put it this way. Uh, every one of your readers could have afforded, or listeners could have afforded that car. And that's how cheap it was. Okay. Yeah. Now, you've gutted the car. You've taken what you need. Uh, where's, the, where's the skeleton now? The skeleton was scrapped. The truck. Okay. The trucks were sold to uh, a rail rebuilder uh, who's, going, who's refurbishing the trucks and going to resell them or use them under one of their own cars. And the shell which was basically a whole bunch of very polluted metal because there's lots of asbestos and things in there, uh, was, was given to a scrapper who has experience taking apart those scrapers. I mean, this, this shell was so corroded, you could put your, your foot through the floor of the vestibule. You know, that's, you know I mean, a car, railroad, I, when I was younger, I always wanted to own a real train car. Um, and uh, real train cars are money pits. They, they, all they do is decay. You know, as soon as you buy them, number one, you got to pay to store them, which could cost anywhere from fifty to two hundred dollars a week. Um, and then you, so you're paying to store them, and then it just decays. You have to maintain them. The ideally, look, if they're stored indoors, they're not going to decay that much. But you know, not many people have a, a train-sized building, you know, on their back lawn. Um, so they just decay, and they cost a lot of money. And after uh, buying this car and seeing, you know, what kind of condition this car, which essentially was just driven and then parked, you know, mm -hmm. in the, sometime in the 1990s, how uh, 10 years or so just sitting there had decayed it so much. You know, I realized that I, I, my dream would never be to own a real piece of equipment. Uh, my dream would have said, you know, I, I've always planned also to build this coach indoors uh, from when I was a kid. And I, I have the, I still have the rejection letter from Via Rail when I wrote to them at the age of 12 and asked them to send me some Via seats. They said no. They said, you know, we refurbish our seats. I said, do you have any old seats from, from, from the Rapido or maybe from the Turbo? Uh, yeah. They said no. Uh, it was a very polite letter. Uh, they, they instead sent me some press releases and brochures, which is not exactly what I was asking for. Um, but I still have that letter. And it's, when I got my first uh, old seat out of a Via car in 1998, I wrote in big marker, oh, yeah, question mark on the letter and then framed it. So I've, I've still got that, that rejection letter from Via from when I was 12. That's amazing. But, yeah, yeah you're right. If you look at the uh, 
for instance, steam locomotives that are an outside display. And I watched one being cosmetically restored, and I asked the guy, I said, why are you putting lagging on the boiler? I said, it's a, it's a, you know, magnet for moisture, which is going to degrade the boiler and just make you do this in five years. Right. And he said, well, it's just how we do it. And I'm going, golly, I'd feel, <laughs> you know, choose something else that's going to not cost me money. <laughs> well, tell you what, the, uh, I appreciate the information. I had no idea how much it costs to store. Oh, yeah. A railroad car. Well, I, I was involved. I'm, I'm a board member of the Toronto Railway Historical Association. We have a very small museum in downtown Toronto, um, and we've got a few pieces of equipment. The, the jewel of our collection is uh, CN Steam Engine Number 6213, and our uh, our collection is located at the John Street Roundhouse down in downtown Toronto, the old CP Roundhouse. And uh, and the VIA was about to scrap all of their LRC locomotives that were in storage. And so uh, I spearheaded the fundraising campaign, and we managed to raise forty thousand dollars to uh, to to purchase the LRC locomotive from Via. And we we pulled that off with the help of wonderful donors from all donate uh, people donors from all over the world. And uh, and but now we've been paying to store it because we're working on it. We're actually very close to having it operational. We should have it operational in the next two to three months. Uh, but just the storing it for the last year and a half, uh, it's a lot of money. You know, it's a lot of money to store that locomotive. Now, Via, it's a very secure place. It's stored on Via property, uh, you know, and there's, there's security and what have you. But it's still outdoors, um, and, and it just costs a lot to store it. And, uh, and one of the, our biggest challenges is not getting it running. It's not getting it beautifully painted back into original colors. I mean, it's still in the original colors, but, you know, with a fresh coat of paint. That's not the, 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 our biggest hurdle right now. Our biggest hurdle is where to store it. We want to, rather than bring it onto the museum, which is landlocked, we want to keep it as a roving ambassador to run on just different tourist lines around Ontario and Quebec. Uh, mm-hmm. But to do that, we need to have some secure place to store it uh, outside of, uh, you know, outside of Via's yard because they, they want it out of there <laughs> as soon as we can get it out. Uh, they need the storage space for their own equipment. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that, that's our biggest challenge. We want somewhere ideally indoors, somewhere protected, somewhere secure. We don't want the vandals coming and smashing the windows. You know, they don't, you can't call up Bombardier and say, send us three new LRC windows. You know, they don't have them on production line. Right. So, uh, it's a real challenge. That's our biggest challenge of everything is storing the locomotive. Yeah, so these are the things you have to face if you own the real thing. Okay. Now, is is that thing still powered by what, an Alco? Alco uh, 251. 251? 100%, 251. And, and wow. it's got an alternator in the back for generating head-end power. It's a very, very powerful, very, very little engine. Uh, that's actually the main reason that they were uh, unreliable was that Bombardier, which, remember, it sort of inherited MLW and Alco, became Bombardier. Right. Um, they crammed, you know, what you'd expect to find uh, in, in, like, a, an M636 engine into this little tiny engine that was only 12 feet high, right? And, uh, and, and so accessing it for maintenance was really, really hard. And I'm hearing all these stories from the old guys still working at the maintenance center whenever we're there working on the locomotive. And they're saying, oh, my God, I got stuck right there for four hours. <laughs> you know, I was trying to get to some uh, access to wiring. I couldn't reach it. I mean, they just they, all they had, the electrical, was it, it's so, so tight in there. I would never want to be in, uh, in an LRC locomotive when it's running, like in the, the rear of the locomotive. You know, I've, I've been mm-hmm. in an Acela. I've been in an F unit. Um, the GMD one, well, obviously beside the hood there, uh, when it's running. But I, I, I could not imagine, you know, being so close to that engine, 
because it's the the quarters are so the, are so tight in there. You know, so it's uh, yeah, it, it was it's it's a very powerful, very very small engine. Wow. Yeah. Okay, now that's uh, I can remember when this stuff first came out because right. I was just getting out of college and actually working in the railroad industry when you know the LRC and then that United uh, Turbo was out right. and stuff, and I thought. This could be the wave of the future, and not so. Yeah, yeah it's frustrating. The turbo, um, it really was a sound project, um, but it, it was it was rushed into service much too quickly because uh, publicity reasons. You know, CN signed the, the contract in April '66. Not a not a rivet had been installed, not a sheet of metal had been had been installed. Nothing, and so we're going to have them in time for next next June, June '67. You know, a, a train needs 10 years of testing. You can't bring it in, you can't build it and bring it into service in 14 months. Um, so they got egg on their face when they couldn't deliver on time. They rushed it into service after less than a year of testing. It didn't work properly. And, right. uh, and then the Pratt and Whitney completely rebuilt the train after it, it, it failed on its first attempt. And then it was the most reliable train in Canada. 99% availability, 97% on time. But by that time, uh, the government had already invested in the LRC. So Pratt and Whitney came to the government and said, right, you know, you, you wanted us to give you this kind of incredible performance. We did. Uh, now we want you to go ahead and order the trains. And they wouldn't. They wouldn't order enough uh, to make it worthwhile. So the project was shelved. And then you had these, these uh, two trains that were still running, which were the best on-time performers in the entire fleet. But it became too expensive to work on, to, to keep them running because there were no parts. You know, and, and they were getting old, right? You had to replace They kept on rebuilding parts rather than replacing them. And it eventually it just happened that they had to, uh, they had to retire the trains. And when you, when you sit down and talk with the people who worked on these trains, they're talking about a child. They're talking about some, something they loved so much. They put their heart and soul into it. You know, these are guys who yeah. worked for CN and VIA. They loved it. You go up to any employee, V employee now who's approaching retirement who remembers working on the turbo. And you get to this glassy, sort of starry look in their eyes, saying, "Oh, what a great train! That was, that was a great train." <laughs> the uh, when I was in the railroad industry, and one of our reps used to work for Baldwin, right? And I would ask him a question about this locomotive, that locomotive, and there would be time his eyes would just glaze over. Yeah. I mean, it was like he was talking about a family member. Yeah. yeah. And cause I think he used to, he got his start by being in the sales department on locomotives. And I'd ask Bob a question, and you know, especially if we were to show, you know, after hours and you're having a drink or something, oh, Bob would just, golly, the, you know, remember the names, the dates, the stories, and his eyes would just glaze over. Yeah. And, yeah, they, there's a personal attachment on some of this stuff. You know, I think that if people ask, uh, people who don't understand the love that we have of trains, because everyone listening to this loves trains as much as you and I do. Um, mm-hmm. And and a lot of people don't get it. Um, and to them, it's like you might as well have a love of toasters, right? It's just another machine. But, yeah, yeah there are people who think toasters are neat, and I'm sure there are toaster collectors of vintage toasters. But <laughs> the tra- trains get the imagination fired. Um, and for some reason, it's mostly men. You know, and I do know a lot, uh, several women rail fans and modelers, but I can probably count them on, on my hands, uh, as opposed to all the men that I know who are modelers um, and rail fans. And and it's something that just gets our imagination going, you know, and it's the stories, it's the people. You know, these trains are not automatic. 
right? They're not like the the new lines in the in the uh, in the metro lines, right? Where the subway lines, where you know it's just automatic. These, there, there's people involved in these stories of making these things work, of of being stuck at three o'clock in the morning in a raging blizzard and you can't get the boiler started in your steam generator, you know that sort of thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's the, those stories. It just adds to the magic and the mystique of, of railways. And, you know, that's why there's so many of us who are, are obsessed with them. It gets into your blood, and it just you know they they say your 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 heart beats clickety clack. The uh, I was born in a railroad hospital. My mom worked for the Chesapeake in Ohio, so I was born in the the company hospital there in West Virginia. Oh, well. But as a kid, and even up to college trains were just dirty they blocked fifth avenue with these endless drags of coal cars going to the ohio river and then i went to work for uh what was then acf industries american car and founders and uh at the huntington plant where we made center flows and we had a a run of cars coming up that just didn't fit into the flow of product in the shop so we went over to uh, the CNO because they had a huge locomotive complex there and leased out one of their buildings. So I was on the team that went over to from industrial engineering to do some work over there. And Yeah, I'm just 22, 23 years old, whatever. And I'm sitting there at lunch one day in this foreman's office and the, the old Fairbanks Morris concrete coaling tower is still there. The roundhouse is still there. And... Sticking out of the uh, I, these weed trees, I think they're sumac trees, was the nose of a locomotive. Mm. And I started looking at it. And I went, good grief, there's a steam locomotive over there. <laughs> so I walked over. And, of course, the closer I get, the larger this thing looms. And I go in between because the trees are growing up around it. And it turned out it was a, a Berkshire. It was one of their K4 Berkshires. So I climb up, <laughs> climb up into it, and I'm amazed at how large it is. Behind it was a northern, one of their Greenbriars, number 614, that it you know later became a fan trip yeah, locomotive. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just fascinated. I look at the contact patch on the drivers, and I, that these things you know have like a quarter size contact patch. So the next day. I gulp down my lunch. I go over into the roundhouse. Because back then in the 70s, you could walk around. Nobody was going to come up and say, hey, what are you doing here? And there were locomotives sitting in the roundhouse. Now, about a year later, all this stuff was donated uh, to museums or put in service. I think Ross Ryland or somebody bought the one. But that's what sparked the interest for me. I went to a bookstore that night on the way home and started buying my wife goes, what the heck are you doing? I said, I'm fascinated by this. And that, you know, it all went downhill from there. Wow. So That's great. that was, I don't know, 40 years ago. <laughs> so let's get back. Because sure. I've been in uh, business unit startups before where you take a concept and, you know, and you've got a green field. And that's, in essence, what you did. You springboarded from selling stuff on eBay to uh, like eBay said, was do- a couple was, years later. That was Doctor Who books. That wasn't even trained. That's <laughs> <laughs> very good. Yeah. So what was the original objective? I mean, your wife makes her innocent statement, and then two years later you're downstream owning a factory in China. So, But what was your original objective 
Well, you know, before I started the PhD, I finished my master's degree in art history, and and uh, and we were in Winnipeg because my wife's from Winnipeg, got married there, and lived there for a while. And uh, and friends said, so you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, what I'd like to do, I said, what I'm going to do is probably go get a PhD in art history. What I'd like to do is build model trains all day. And uh, and it really is my passion, uh, both the model and full-size trains. I don't particularly like sitting by the track watching trains go by. Um, I much prefer to ride them. You know, I'm a big fan of getting, you know, waiting for the seat sales and then getting on a via train and going somewhere. Um, and uh, when I'm in, whenever I'm in the States, uh, Amtrak, even if I had to drive to the States because it wasn't convenient to take the train, my brother lives in Washington, D.C., so we will drive down. You know, we'll, we'll include a, a, a trip to Baltimore or somewhere on the train uh, just so that the family, we can ride Amtrak. Um, and and that, that's my passion, you know, is, is the train experience itself and, and the models. And so, you know, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to try something where whether I succeed or fail was due to uh, my own abilities. I felt that in the academic world, you know, you could graduate with uh, uh, stellar uh, curriculum vitae, you know, with, with incredible uh, references, and you've done quite things in your degree, and you go to apply, and this actually happened to be where I applied to different uh, universities for just a contract positions of some kind. I said, while I'm finishing up my PhD, I'd like to do some teaching. I had a lot of teaching experience. Um, and I knew all the people in these departments very well because I'd been on conferences with them and that sort of thing. And out of the, the 20... Uh, letters I sent, I got offered one course for $10,000 a year in Winnipeg. Um, and I, this is, this is crazy. I mean, you know, I've sent this out to, to all these looking for some kind of, of employment where I could, you know, uh, support my family. And there was just nothing there. Um, and uh, I called the different universities and said, you know, uh, so what's the story? And they said, listen, you know, you have a great references, you, you have great experience, but we don't have any money. And, uh, and we've also got, you know, we've got our full complement of professors. And when they retire, you know, we can, we can hire someone new when someone retires. But, you know, we hired everybody else last, you know, new hire was 20 years ago. So when this next person retires, there's 20 years of applicants who've been waiting for the job. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they've got a lot yeah. more experience than you do because, you know, they've been finding things to keep busy for the last 20 years. You haven't finished your degree yet. Right. And, and it, it was a very good point. I just I had to really think about this and say, you know, I, I could be a really bright star in that field, but it's still a lot of luck um, whether you could actually afford to buy a house, afford to have a family. Uh, you know, if I had gone the that route, you know, probably by now I would be I'd have a professorship. But it means that we probably wouldn't have three kids now. We wouldn't have the house because it's just there's just so little money to be made. Um, a, in that profession, in, in being in the academic world and the humanities. It's very, very difficult to make a living. Um, and so I said, you know, I've got nothing nothing to lose, right? I might as well try and follow my dream. I might as well try and and start a model training business because what else have I got right now? You know, even if I go and finish this PhD, I'm going to get a, a, you know, instead of having a $10,000 course, I'll get a $15,000 course. Yeah, I can't. I can't pay rent anywhere for fifteen thousand dollars. You know what I mean? So it's it, it was it was really a, a question of I got nothing, so I might as well give it a shot. And uh, and I I went around to um, various family members and, and said, can you put in a little bit? Can you put in a little bit? 
and I got some some startup money put together. Um, and it was about a year when it was really, really hard. You know, I had I got a bit of startup money, but I was looking for more uh, capital to get started. I just couldn't find it anywhere until I met somebody who uh, really had had faith in what I was doing and said to me, I'd like to be 50-50 partners with you. He's a, he's a silent partner. Uh, and he's since become a, a great friend and mentor. Um, and he invested the rest of the funds um, that we needed to uh, really take this off the ground. Um, and then I, you know, I first went to China to visit the existing factories that were that were out there uh, making trains. And I came back feeling, A, there was they were very expensive. Uh, and B, you know, there were already so many manufacturers using these factories. You know, I, I didn't want to feel like I was pushing into their territory uh, because I knew that if, if I was established with a factory and it's a young upstart comes and tries to make stuff at my factory, I, I would feel you know, there could be real negative, negative energy there. And I don't think we don't need that. You know, this industry is too small. So thankfully, uh, a friend of a friend got me in touch with somebody in China named Colin. Uh, Colin has since become my manager of operations in China, and uh, and he met a fellow named Dennis who was starting up a factory, um, and was looking for a client, and I was a client looking for a factory, so we got together and and developed a, a really strong relationship, uh, and that's still going today, you know. So we're still at the same factory that I started with in 2005. Now things have gotten harder because of a lot of the situation in China right now, uh, but uh, but we're still there. Okay, so we're going to break it right here, and we'll pick up this conversation and our interview with uh, Jason Schron at Rapido in part two. Mm-hmm. 